Well, a very warm welcome to you all. Thank you so much for joining me for the book launch of The Presence and the Dream. The anthology celebrates 10 years of the Pre-Raphaelite Society Poetry Prize and slightly more um, embarrassing for me, 10 years of being the Pre-Raphaelite Society Poets in Residence. Um, I had the great honour of winning the first competition back in 2011. Um, and in 2012, I was appointed as the Society's Poets in Residence. Um, I want to be really transparent about this. I proposed to the Society um, and basically said, you need me as your poet in residence. And the reason I want to tell you that is because I want to encourage any writers here that if you encounter an organisation who shares interests with you or whose aesthetic appeals to you, I encourage you heartily to approach that organisation with a proposal that you be their writer in residence. And um, it's a roll of the dice, but for me, it really is one that has paid off. Uh, so this anthology includes all of the winners of the Poetry Prize from 2011 through to 2021. Um, subsequently, subsequently to winning the competition, I've co-judged I've co-judged the prize each year with Serena Trowbridge, um, and that's been a great pleasure for me. So the book contains all of the winners from that period, along with some of Serena's and my favourite poems from the prize. And it also includes a few of my poems that I've written. Well, I'm going to start by reading a poem that was a very early commission that I wrote for the Society in the autumn of 2012. I visited the Pre-Raphaelite avant-garde exhibition at Tate Britain um, and there's lots of amazing and sumptuous artworks on display and I was asked by the Society to write a poem responding to any particular artwork that inspired me and what I was really drawn to was this really small and quite humble piece which is Rossetti's self-portrait. Um, it was drawn in 1847 when Quite remarkably, he was just a teenager. He was 19 years old. And I was struck by the way that on the wall it was displayed as the centerpiece of lots of other very small and intimate either portraits or self-portraits of his fellow pre-Raphaelites and circle. And it reminded me of Rossetti's painting, The Beloved, where a bride's face is surrounded by the faces of her attendants. I thought I'd start with this this evening because it's, I think, a really nice introduction to the PRB and the main players. On viewing Rossetti's self-portrait, Tate Britain, October 2012. So this is what your mirror saw. Is this the very gaze that met you at the start and at the end of all your days, that glimpsed the secrets of your soul and knew your private ways? I see your pencil bring to life an eye, an ear, a lip. I search for hidden meaning in your curling collar tip and marvel at your artistry and easy penmanship. I linger in your company, reluctant to depart, constructing here my own beloved, with you its beating heart, surrounded by a garland formed of modest works of art. Amidst the faces of your friends, encircled by your peers, a gathering that sweeps away the intervening years and sees you as the germ that sparked those avant-garde ideas. 
A guardian in miniature above you like a crown is placed your small portrayal of the cultured Maddox Brown, while Stevens lends his critic's voice to broaden your renown. Here's Holman Hunt, here's Millet, each has sketched the other's face. Familiar and intimate, their lines attempt to trace beneath the skin, to probe beyond the surface carapace. Now Walner, Munro, Solomon, all add their own repute. To grace this wall a brotherhood, each one to contribute towards your branch of artistry, which bears such gilded fruit. A fragile figure by your side in scant suggested chair. Elizabeth, translucent, plaits a strand of graphite hair. A study in simplicity with features barely there. And here's your old friend, Morris, who expounded beauty's law. A poet and an artisan, no man loved woman more than Morris loved his precious Jane, your sometime paramour. Christina shares your company, depicted by John Brett. She bids us to remember her when she is gone, and yet, if it should purge the pain of grief, permits us to forget. Astride your shoulder, William, a brother's written page immortalised your noble goals to paint a golden age. Still, all the while, my eyes seek yours and cannot disengage. Imagining your fingertips, I stand and picture how they glided once across this leaf, caressing hair and brow. Your eyes hold mine as if no time has passed from then to now. I yearn to press my outstretched hand against your parchment skin, to feel the fading contours of your nose, your cheeks and chin, to unlock your expression and to know what lies within. But a sudden interruption as a cough destroys the mood. I'm jostled and the spell dissolves. New visitors intrude to break the bond between us both, the viewer and the viewed. So thank you for allowing me to open the evening with that poem. The text of all of our poems this evening will be screen shared along with some images I've selected that will illuminate or illustrate the inspirations for those poems. And I will introduce each poet as we go along. It's the most amazing honour for me to be anthologised by all of these incredible poets. And I'm really delighted to invite our first reader, and this will be Joanna Crosby, who's reading Between Then and Now, Faith and Doubt, There is Only the Sunlight Slanting. So, Joanna, would you like to unmute yourself, please, and read your wonderful poem? <laughs> um, OK, I'll read it and uh, we can talk about it in the talking about it part. Between Then and Now, Faith and Doubt there is only the sunlight slanting. I was alone on dawn patrol. The woods dew streaked were green and cool. Outlining gold and dark she stood, the summer sun behind as calm and still, she gazed along my gun. A maiden from a painting, long pale dress, her red hair loose with flowers woven through. I dropped the gun, held out my hands, no threats, but what I said came from another time. 
lady, is Avalon in blossom now? My gentle knight, she said, with sword arm bare and without colours or a lady's silk. She spoke as if she knew me, low and sane. I told her my platoon was on the move on foot among the forest-scented pines. She put her hand upon me, pressed my chest, warm fingers through my breastplate. How could she touch my thin skin? She drew a circle, air tilted. In my hand an apple swelled. Avalon is bloom and fruit and bough. The apple turned inside my gripping fist as fog oozed upwards from the darkening moss. The forest heaved pale glimpses of the dead in pits that we had sought but had not found. The women, raped and wronged, pressed close around. The lady wept with them, used her bare hands to brush the cleansing earth from entry wounds. Not Avalon, I cried, this blood that blooms. She rubbed the apple clean against my brow. Avalon is here, even now. I dropped onto the moss, the grip of combat tight around my spine, trees parted ranks. I saw my officer sprawled, silent, cold, grey in death, though younger than my son. I shuddered, crying, Avalon, in danger. Yes, she sighed. Again, a slub is in the weed. The mirror cracks. She pressed the apple to my heart. The trees grew thicker, laced with leaf and thorn. Dog rose puckered through my sleeve, twined round my boots and pinned my lady's hem with heavy scent. Avalon was rising, sure and slow. I saw a table set down in the glade. Men sat as if in council, but was stone, with ivy trailed from outstretched hands. I knew they breathed and dread rose in my chest as I pushed forward, recognising one. Father, I called the statue, dead to me, but here snared more certainly than sleep. I laid my head on his cold lap to weep. Which, I cursed the lady, standing near, is this my destiny, to rot with them? She shook her head. I have not set your path. You only know what in your heart you ask. But this is Avalon, neglected now. I straightened as the forest shrank away and left me in the morning glade once more. The lady stood beside me, gold and brave. Death is inside us all, seeds within each fruit. She turned the reddened apple in her hands, and you will scatter death along the way like riot things which neglected root. But when my journey's over, there's no grail. She smiled. My mother once had looked the same. The grail touched your heart and hand and brow. Avalon is with you. This I vow. Wow, thank you, Joanna. Um, such a tour de force. It's a spectacular poem. Um, would you like to speak a little about it so that people have a, a bit of context for it? Um, thanks, yeah. I was, at the time that I wrote it, I was doing a creative writing module at the Open University and I wanted to try and write something about um, the way that the past affected um, modern warfare, modern soldiers um, and sort of the idea of the spirit of warfare. And um, I looked at Morris's poems about Sir Galahad and the pre-Raphaelite works about these grail knights going out on a quest. Um, and at the time I was also trying to keep fit and I was running through beech trees and this line 
is Avalon in Blossom now appeared in my head. Um, so, and as I was running, I was trying to keep the meter going and trying to remember the lines until I got home. And I found I had about four or five lines and I just worked it out from there every time that I went running through the beech trees. So it really has been informed by um, the sort of the physical world around me. And I was trying to get that imagery in. Um, and in case anyone's wondering about apples in particular, that's what I actually research is the history of the apple and the orchard. So there's always going to be an apple in it somewhere. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. Thank you so much. It's such an immersive poem. And it's really fascinating to hear about the process of how you came up with the idea and, and how it developed. And thank I think you. you you mix the two worlds so skillfully. So thank you very much indeed for that. For that. And I'm so pleased that we, we can include the poem in, in the book. Thank you for sharing it with us this evening. Thanks. Okay, well, I'm going to ask Joanna to pop yourself back on mute, please. And we're going to move to our next reader. And the images were taken for the, from the Quest for the Holy Grail tapestries. Um, by Burne Jones, Morris and Zell from 1900. Well, I'm delighted to say that our next reader is Rosie Miles, who's going to read her wonderful poem, Wallpaper Man, It's Over. And I think Rosie is going to speak a little about the poem in order to introduce it and contextualise it. So Rosie, if you'd like to unmute yourself, please. Okay, I'm unmuted. Hello, hi. Um, Thanks very much. Um, it's wonderful to be part of this anthology. Um, I'm loving already the fact that there are poems that rhyme and poems that use meter. And, and it's lovely that, I mean, we can often, uh, um, free verse is fantastic, but, and it's also fantastic, I think, when um, poets are still using meter and rhyme in kind of intelligent ways in the 21st century and, and obviously in some ways it's maybe appropriate to the pre and Victorian poetry uh, as well. This this poem, um, I, I said to Sarah earlier on in an email today that I realised I could say a huge amount about it, far more than you will all want to hear and I'm very aware of that, but maybe I'll just say initially that I wrote it over 20 years ago um, when I had just finished a PhD on William Morris's poetry. Um, the poem then came back, I guess, because it got placed in the first um, pre-Raphaelite poetry competition in 2010, I think that was. Um, and now it's come back again in 2022. So it, it's kind of sort of coming back every 10 years, which is really interesting to me and a wonderful it might seem quite a sort of jokey poem um uh, in all sorts of ways but there's a kind of sort of serious undercurrent to it that sort of slightly threaded its way through my life and perhaps my relationship to working with William Morris because I guess I was studying William Morris um and I'd just done a PhD and then I had a job as an academic and now in 2022 I no longer have a job uh, as an academic and I'm kind of trying to be something of a freelance poet, including possibly trying to set up residencies. So um, the very last line of the poem uh, feels like it has actually really quite a powerful resonance for me at this moment. So with that, maybe I'll read the poem. Wallpaper man, it's over. I'm fed up with flowers, foliage, leaves. I've had it with tulips and strawberry thieves. I'm tired of trellis, acanthus, vine, 
Irises irritate and daisies decline to move me. William, it's over. William, we're through. Lancelot and Guinevere just won't do. I don't want to meet by haystacks and floods. I don't need to find wondrous waters or woods beyond worlds. Sigurd was super, Jason near divine. And your other poems, by the way, I still read all the time. But there's really no need to bring me more flowers. I've more than enough to fill several bowers already. It's nothing personal. You're a man in your prime. But William, these days our rhythms and rhymes differ so much I'm afraid it's curtains. Please no more chintz or carpets from Merton. We're through. You're a very good bloke. You're politically sound. But closets are blue will. And lately I found that daughter May used a different thread and ended up taking Miss Lobb to bed at Kelmscott. So thanks for the flowers, thanks for the leaves, thanks for the wallpaper and all the sheaves of poems. I've been spellbound for too long. Now it's time to sing my song, if I can. Thanks. Thank you so much for sharing that poem, Rosie. It has such a delicious tartness to it. I think the levity is there, but you're absolutely right. It does feel like a poem of substance. It also feels like a serious poem. Um, and there's a lot of internal um, movement in the poem as well. And there is so much Morris imagery in there. It's, um, it's, it's a marvellous achievement. So thank you so much for allowing us to include it in the book. And um, thank you for reading this evening. I'm, I'm so grateful that you could. Um, Thanks a lot. I, I want to say to um, everyone who's here, um, poets and audience, please do be generous with your comments in the chat. If, um, if there's a poem or, or a line that particularly resonates or that you think is particularly wonderful, please do say so. Um, I'm going to save the chat and send it to the poets afterwards. And I would love it if all of our poets here this evening had lots of lovely things to read about themselves. So, so far we've heard from Joanna and Rosie and we've got lots of fabulous poets to, to hear from. So please do be generous with your, your comments. Thank you, Rosie. Can I just say just one more uh, very tiny thing, which is that I can remember when I wrote the poem, so over 20 years ago, thinking, oh my goodness, you know, who am I ever going to read that to? Because like, I need I need an incredibly Morris slash pre-Raphaelite literate audience. Where am I going to get that? So you've kind of just made my night because you are my audience, really. So thank you. Thank you. You have definitely found your tribe. <laughs> Well, thank you again, Rosie. I'm delighted that we can hear from Deborah Harvey, whose poem, This Serviceable Ghost, won the competition in 2012, I think. So, Deborah, are you there? And if so, can you unmute yourself to read your beautiful poem, please? I'm here. I'm unmuted. Um, my poem, I think, is travelling in completely the opposite direction from Rosie's, actually. It's, it's quite funny that one's following the other. Over half my life ago, I had an epiphany when I realized that everything I loved, stylized designs, asymmetric furniture and buildings, old books with big capital letters and tangled borders on the title page, poetry, socialism, could be traced back either to or through William Morris. And having encountered him when I was about 28, 29, 
I fell in love, not just with what he created, but the honourable man that he was. I've made the pilgrimage to Kelmscott Manor several times, and my favourite thing in it is William's overcoat. You're not allowed to touch it, but I might have come very close. Some years ago, 15 maybe, I wrote this poem about his coat. This serviceable ghost for William Morris. His overcoat is hanging on the back of the North Hall door, as if he's somewhere in the house he loved, bent over a manuscript or drawing or listening to cows low across the meadows. It's not the mantle of a poet. It doesn't swirl like John Ball's cassock or Sigurd the Falsong's cloak. This wrapping he swapped for a box of oak is the husk of a grain of wheat crushed beneath the feet of mourners at that rainy harvest home when beaten leaves dripped from pillars and lamps were ringed with wreaths of oats and barley. Yet like the shed skin of a snake, the case of a chrysalis discarded once its earthly work is done, this serviceable ghost of a great heart gone earns its place now, not through usefulness, but beauty. Deborah, thank you so much for reading your beautiful poem. And um, it's such a and it's such a heartfelt tribute to Morris and I love the image of his coat outliving him and becoming so emblematic of the, the man that he was and I think your imagery the shed skin of a snake and, and the idea of this husk but still still something of beauty is so powerful and so delicately and deftly realised so thank you so much for reading your wonderful poem this evening. So we come to our next reader and I'm delighted that Camelia Stafford can be with us this evening and Camelia is going to read her poem Evelyn and Aurora Triumphant and Evelyn de Morgan is one of my favourite artists so I'm so pleased that Camelia can be here this, this afternoon to read for us. Oh thank you so much that's lovely. Um, it's quite a while since I wrote this poem and in some ways, I think for that reason, I feel a little bit at a loss as to what to say about it, but I guess I'd really like it to kind of um, speak for itself. So it's called Evelyn and Aurora Triumphants. Evelyn, in her Chelsea studio, cultured the goddess Aurora, her skin, the pearl of a dawn moon set in lilac skies meander. Braided fine spun roses rope the goddess's modesty. Circlets of birds ring her flaxen hair, fashion her blossoming anklets. Aurora wed to dawning sun, Evelyn engaged to De Morgan. A trio of angels chorus new beginnings. Fanfare of golden trumpets herald first light crossing Manresa Road. The early morning city recast. 
a flinty, mythical landscape. Her surely mixed reds, slayed honed techniques amplify angels' wings. Their operatic scarlets peel, the theatre of the canvas sings. Falsetto hues of Carmen steal the breath. Carnelian tones whisper on feathers once traded as wrought by Burne Jones. Evelyn's mother voiced her wish for a daughter, not an artist. Wilhelmina, Evelyn's sister, wrote of her vitality, her restless character, her sister's deep sensitivity to adversity and felicity. Anguish abounds in the figure of night, the graying fluidity of robes receding into the craggy lakeside. He hides his face, covers his eyes in the crook of his elbow, conceals each trace of morning's cooing doves of light, closes his ears to angels, serenading his defeat, to Aurora's triumph over his perils. Gaze into her tender countenance, read her serenity, placid in victory, absorb the artist's blushes of Florentine sun, vivid, dedicated to painting, heavenly creatures, glance on the night, the telltale of disquiet, see Evelyn's psyche come into light. Thanks, I just would like to say how wonderful it is to be included in this gorgeous anthology. anthology. Thank you so much to Sarah and Serena. Oh gosh, thank you, Camilla. Honestly, the, the privilege is entirely mine. I'm absolutely thrilled and honoured to be anthologised alongside all of you. Thank you so much for your wonderful poem. You read it so beautifully. Um, oh, thank you. I think it's the most marvellous um, tribute to both Evelyn's life and her work. And I think you've really deftly married up both of those. Um, and I do just want to point out how amazing these couplets are. Um, I can rhyme, but I can't half rhyme. So I'm, I'm always so impressed that artist, restless, felicity, fluidity, angels, peril, perils, placid, vivid, these really nuanced phonic echoes that just kind of chime on the edge of our consciousness. I think this is technically an absolutely brilliant poem and Serena and I thrilled to include it. Thank you so much for Thank being you. here. That's so lovely. Thank you. Oh gosh, thank you for, for being here to share it with us this evening. Thanks. That's thank a, a real pleasure. Gosh, well, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, we're moving on to our next fabulous poet now, and I'm delighted that Mike Sims is with us this evening, and Mike is going to read another William Morris-inspired poem. We're all big Morris fans here. Mike's going to read his fabulous poem, Peacock and Dragon. So are you there, Mike? I hope so. Can you hear me? We can. Cool. Um, so, um, like Camilla, I'd just like to say how 
great it is to have work in this beautiful book um, and what amazing company and poems um, my poem is uh, on the page with. Hadn't thought through that sentence. Uh, okay, this poem is inspired by a, um, a woven piece by Morris called Peacock and Dragon. And um, it was made in 1878 and I did a bit of research on Morris. I bet not anything like as much as all of you when you were writing about the Pre-Raphaelites, but that was, I think the year they moved to Kelmscott and um, there is, and Jane Morris's marriage uh, hit rocky patches from time to time. And I think my idea was that the move to the new house might mark a new start um, in their relationship. And that some of that is captured in this um, design of opposites, um, peacocks and dragons. So here's the poem. Peacock and Dragon. Knotted turquoise, russet, green, this exotic marriage of peacock and dragon. Lidded languor and a glamorous dreaming, dreaming matched to ardor, industry, fire. Sleeping lily, one lotus flower to clawing bramble, vaulting vine. Opposites combine their strengths on a loom. The drawing warp and catching weft tether a thousand loving entanglements. Here's a craft of inching gains that on each repeat makes a fresh terrain, uncovers the old way through the woods and sets a heart shape amongst the briar, emblem of a husband's gift and desire. Mike, thank you so much for sharing your poem with us this evening. Um, I'm going to tell everyone that I think you're being far too modest in your introduction because this is a, um, an acrostic poem. So the first letter of each line, when you read it downwards, spells Kelmscott House. And it's also a free sonnet that finishes with a rhymed couplet. So this is a piece of technical bravura and you were far too modest to tell us that. So I want to point it out to everyone. It's absolutely wonderful. And the woven imagery is, um, is so compelling and, and really beautifully realized. Um, I'll be reading a poem later that also uses the imagery of threads. And I think I now realize that that may owe a debt of thanks to this one. Um, thank you so much for allowing us to include the poem in the book and thank you for reading it this evening. The gratitude is all mine. Uh, thank you for those very kind words too. Our pleasure, my pleasure, thank you. Okay, I'm going to ask Mike to pop himself on mute. Um, I'm delighted that Emma Pursehouse is with us this evening and Emma is going to read her wonderful poem, Christina Responds Badly to Poetry Criticism. I'm sure there are a few of us who can relate to this one. <laughs> are you there, Emma? I am, yeah. Um, yeah, my poem's inspired by this little cartoon uh, by uh, Rossetti of Christina uh, throwing a wobbly, having had a bad review in the Times. Um, the little cartoon is in Wittick Manor in Wolverhampton, which is where I'm from. Not Wittick Manor, just the Wolverhampton bit. Uh, and if anybody's interested, the quote from the Times that is kind of scribbled on the cartoon there runs, Miss Rossetti can point to work which could not easily be mended. 
Um, so here's my poem. Christina responds badly to poetry criticism. And here is poker work to be proud of. Smithereens of mirror the smashed panes, the poor clock bludgeoned to death where it fell. A last critical tick before the springs burst free and fled about the room. A chair is overturned, its back broken. Christina stamps a foot, furrows her dark brows, then hammers home a sudden, unfathomable hatred of tables, unleashing a scream that brings the curtains down. Today's news, flung on the fire, burns too slowly for the China elephant's liking. On the shelf, he covers his eyes with his trunk, says nothing stays stum. Oh, Emma, that's absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. It's so difficult, I think, to do humour in poetry, or at least to do it well. And this is so dry, so wry, so underwritten, and so perfectly observed. It's absolutely wonderful it's it just illuminates the book thank you so much for letting us publish it and it was lovely to hear you read it it was even funnier to hear it being read out loud actually so thank you thank you, <laughs> Cheers. Thank you emma it's just fantastic okay well emma pops herself back on mute I'm delighted to welcome our next reader, and this is Usher Kishore, and Usher is going to read her marvellous poem, The Lament of Lamia. So, Usher, please unmute and read your fabulous poem. Thank you, Sarah. First of all, I'd like to say thanks to Sarah and Serena for uh, editing such a wonderful anthology. It's splendid to be in this August body of poets. Everyone's a pre-Raphaelite fan. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, my poem, uh, The Lament of Lamia, is inspired by this magnificent painting by John William Waterhouse. It's also called L uh, Lamia Second Version, where she's portrayed as the beautiful woman sitting by a forest pool with her splendid snakeskin un unwinding around her. I mean, the poem is also an ekphrastic effort, a pastiche on Keats's Lamia. As you would know, in Keats's poem, the god Hermes grants human form to Lamia, who's entrapped in serpent form. She then falls in love with the Corinthian youth, Lycios or Lysias, and is about to marry him. And at the banquet hall, the wise man Apollonius reveals her to Lycios, who dies of a heartbreak, and Lamia disappears. This is, the poem is written in Lamia's voice, with an appropriation of a couple of lines from Goethe's Faust in translation, where he speaks of Wenter's vile Lamia with brazen brows and lips that smile. The epigraph of the poem is also from Keats's poem. The Lament of Lamia. She was a Gordian shape of dazzling hue, vermilion spotted, golden, green, and blue. Let me melt into this twilight pool, wither away in dazzling luster, vermilion spots, sapphire, amethyst, and ruby as argent. 
Let me disintegrate into peacock shades, wane like the silver moon, interwreathed in fantasy and reason. In a world of shadows, I sit ankle deep in gloom, gazing in demure solitude, the gloomier tapestry of my sensuous serpent shape, half woman, half snake, a monster myth that breathes in seductive hues. Upon my crest, I wear lost love in warnish fire and glide back into my cursed form, dressing my misery in slithering magnificence. I am no demon's mistress. I am no demon's self. I am a feminine woe that once sought passion in fairy hall. Love glances from unlovely eyes, buried my beloved in his marriage robes. Real were the unreal dreams I cherished, a mortal soul for my immortal love. Now, I weep in flashed phosphor and striking sparks without one cooling tear. I convulse in scarlet pain, my fantasy lost, my reason faded. I still hear lustrous echoes of fairy music from that purple-lined palace of sweet sin. I feel the fragrance of myrrh and spiced wood that burn in the censers of my rainbow heart, that the dreary old man unweed. He was a ghost of reason haunting my fairy dreams. All my charms had to fly at this cold philosophy that will even clip an angel's wings. I emptied haunted air and melted into shade and flame-like glow. But I am no wretched lamia, vile wench with brazen brows and inglorious lips that smile. I am no awful rainbow haunting the heavens. I am a virgin, purest lipped, yet learned in the lore of love to my rainbow core. I only conspired with the lusty winged god to claim my love. Now cinders, ashes and dust, my spirit burning in hell. Wily Cupid had fluttered his jealous wings in cursed roar at my mirrored paradise in Elysian shade. My love was no deadly enchantment, nor passionate illusion. It was a purest sentiment, as orphic as the blue of the sky, as delphic as the green of the ocean. But I have left the banquet hall in haste, and Lysias sighed. He lies cold now, sans pulse, sans breath, sans life, empty of delight. While I roam in desolate dole, where I will, through Nerid's waves, through Thetis' bower, where Bacchus drains his dregs, divine, stopping only by twilight pools to wash my woes. No gods, no mortals, no sagemen to haunt me here. They have all vanished into the seamless white of light. And I, a wandering spirit in dusky realms, breathing melancholy on flowering water weeds and floating lily pads. Hermes, star of Lethe, will you hold the spin of time for one warm flushed moment? Will you unlock fancy's casket with your serpent rod and stolen light? Let me have once more my immortal dream and haunted air. Let me have once more a woman's shape, charming as before, 
Let me reclaim the Corinthian youth back from death and Apollonius's glare. Thank you. Well, Usha, thank you so much. This is such an extraordinary piece of writing. It's completely immersive. Um, I'm totally lost in the world of the poem. And I think it's a really impressive achievement to write something that feels kind of historically authentic and yet still retain um, a contemporary aesthetic. And you manage that so well. It's such a skillful and impressive piece of writing. Um, and we're thrilled to include it in the book. And I'm so pleased that you could be with us this evening to share it. Thank you so much. Thank you, uh, uh, Sarah. And thank you, everybody. It's a pleasure being here. Well, thanks thank again. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, well, Asha pops herself back on mute. Geraldine can't be with us this evening. So we will pop through to our next reader. And I'm delighted that Shelley Rush-Jacks is here this evening, and she's going to read her beautiful poem from the memoir of Georgiana Byrne-Jones. So are you there, Shelley? And if so, I'd love to introduce you and hand over to you. Hello, Sarah, yes, thank you. Um, thanks everybody, this has been amazing. It's so wonderful to hear all these beautiful poems come to life, so thank you, it's a real privilege. Um, so yeah, so my poem is, well, it's from a sequence of 14 poems that I ended up eventually writing um, called Fragments from the Life and Death of Elizabeth Siddle. Um, and this poem draws on and reshapes material I found in letters and memoir written by Georgiana Byrne-Jones when she was looking back towards the end of her life. Um, she was married to Edward Byrne-Jones. I don't need to tell you that. This is the strange thing about this uh, reading, isn't it? That I'm talking to people that already know stuff. But yeah, Georgiana Byrne-Jones, the wife of Edward Byrne-Jones. And she and her husband were friends with Rossetti and Elizabeth Siddle. And I wanted to capture um, Georgiana's impressions of Rossetti and Siddle as a couple. And I was particularly interested in the briefly snatched moments of friendship and intimacy and, and sisterhood between the two women. Poems from the memoir of Georgiana Byrne-Jones. I wish I could recall more of that day, the reception we received at Wombat's Lair. I've something vaguely lodged about the way that Lizzie laughed, the way she wore her hair, and plucking out the image of an owl whom Gabriel embroiled in a feud. They rushed at one another, Gabriel clang-clanging with his stick across the cage, their eyes locked fast in fury. How he made the fearsome creature almost bark with rage. Another afternoon at Hampton Court, we lost ourselves completely in the maze. Upon the hedge-hemmed paths we danced and thought this how we'd spend our sumptuous everydays. We rounded corners, whirled and doubled back, expecting half to meet ourselves again. Each time we lost or found our rightful track, how Gabriel would whoop, declare his bliss, and Lizzie flutter breathless on his arm. We swore we'd always marry make like this. I see her standing in that little room to which she beckoned me on our return. Before its latticed window, she removed her bonnet and her hair sparingly pinned, dropped down in soft and heavy, deep red wings. We mused on future schemes, imagining a wealth of colours, rooms to keep them in. 
That day, her cheek was delicately bright. Rose petals surely lay beneath the skin. Her eyelids scarcely seemed to veil such light. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shelley. You read that beautifully. This is such a tender and intimate poem and the voice feels entirely authentic. It's so full of detail and you paint such a vivid picture. And I think there's something so tragic about the wealth of colours and rooms to keep them in. And obviously we, we all know what the, Liz's life was cut tragically short. So there's this kind of, I think, coming to the poem with that knowledge, um, it has a kind of, um, an even greater tragic resonance and you you bring that out so so tactfully and so carefully it's just beautiful thank you so much for for allowing us to, to reproduce it in the book and for sharing it this evening oh, it's a pleasure thank you very much Sarah thank you I'm going to um, close this half with um, a pair of poems and they're both quite short and I do think of these as companion pieces even though they were written um, a couple of years apart. The first is gosh, another um, William Morris inspired poem. Um, I wrote this after visiting the uh, River and Rowing Museum in Henley, where there was this wonderful exhibition in, I think, 2019 on Morris and the Thames. Um, Morris moved his, uh, his factory to the banks of the Wandle in Merton, and it was there from, I think, 1881 to 1889. And during that time, he designed lots of wonderful fabrics and he designed, um, he named lots of them after Thames tributaries. Um, this particular design is Evenload. Um, and the other thing I learned was that um, the entire Morris family made a trip via the Thames from their house on the banks of the Thames in Hammersmith, Kelmscott House to their home in Oxfordshire, Kelmscott Manor. And I absolutely love the idea of the four Morrises, um, William, William and Jane and their daughters, Jenny and May, making that particular boat trip. And their house, their boathouse was called the Ark. Um, so there's something um, I think kind of quite um quite wittily biblical there as well. So in this poem, I've reimagined that particular journey and I've buried lots of Morris's Thames tributary designs within the text of the poem. Here we were on the Thames that is the Thames amidst the down-like country and all cockneydom left far behind and it was jolly, William Morris. On the Thames that is the Thames, Camscot to Camscot, house to manor, born by the water's shushing windrush, the ark splits the Thames along its length. Imagine a family, two by two, parents and daughters all stitched with the same silver blue threads. Imagine how the weight of their bodies, their cargo of dreams, is spread even load through the wooden chambers of the boat's heart. Hear the rise and fall of gentle rocking song beneath them. Cradle, cradle. What patternwork must have been printed briefly onto the meniscus as they passed? A stylized ripple of petals, a wandle of bramble and vine making a lee below their bow. 
Imagine the travellers suspended medway between banks, their craft a brown leaf on green stem, craning westway. The river asks nothing of them, seeks news from nowhere as its accent rolls from glottal-stocked cockney to lodden-soft burr. You will soon be home, Tem sings to itself as much as to those it carries. You will soon be home from home. And I'm going to close, thank you. I'm going to close this um, half with a poem inspired by William's daughter, May. Um, May Morris was a remarkable designer, embroider and artisan in her own right. And she also spent a great deal of time and energy on ensuring William's artistic legacy. I took this photo at an exhibition of May's work at the William Morris Gallery in Walthamstow, which is a wonderful space. And the poem, if you read each line, the first word of each line, when read downwards, spells out a quote from May Morris. Um, and it is, I'm a remarkable woman, always was, though none of you seem to think so. And that was um, that was a letter that she wrote to George Bernard Shaw, with whom she had had a relationship. Threads. I'm the life picked out in needlework, embroidered, a chain stitch away from parents whose artistry was remarkable. I am the satin stitch of trailing grapes, a woman with fingers that spun silvery vines, wrought always in a green that winter cannot wither. This I was and am and more. I am a tangle of strawberries, though this seed did not fall far from its trees. I am none and all of these. I am fastened, coiled in skeins of inheritance, soft as heather, the trellis of violets you could almost smell. I am speckling feathers that seemed to take flight, birds fledged of frame, calling to my herringbone soul a fly-stitch song. I am all that I think and sow, all that I made and did not make, and so the silk is cut, and I am where the threads break.